Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Rico Media, Peter Kafka. I am talking to media journalist extraordinaire, also part-time uh, tech advisor for his mother, Lucas Shaw. Welcome, Lucas. Uh, thanks for having me back, Peter. Uh, since we last talked, some things have changed. I got COVID, which is why I'm not talking to you in person, but we're doing this remotely. Everyone else is getting COVID. Uh, we can talk about that. You also got a promotion, which is, I think, good news for your competitors, less good news for people who like to read you. Uh, I guess I'm somewhere in between. Uh, you're now an editor at Bloomberg and then an occasional writer as well. So it's a busy year. Welcome. Thank you. Yes, you sent me good news with a question mark. Yeah. I believe that the day it was announced. Um, I want to do a, a beyond beyond our relative COVID status. I want to talk about what has happened this year. I think the big themes are covid consolidation. Is there another C word I can add for a third? Uh, COVID. Welcome back. Yeah. I feel like this is a year where a lot happened. And then if we look back, it's also been a stasis year in some ways, just because COVID has put everything on pause for yet another 12 months. We thought we were getting out of it. We still aren't out of it. Um, let's just go industry by industry. Um, we've had multiple discussions about movies and the state of movies and what happens to people going to movies and whether they're going to be streaming or not. Um, and we've been shrugging our shoulders for the last 18 months saying, we'll wait and see. I think we're still there, but do you feel any more confident about which way the movie industry is going now um, than maybe you would have a year ago or 18 months ago? Do you have a sense of what movies look like in a year or five years from now? Yes, in that there was a, an acceleration of these companies embracing streaming as a distribution outlet for their movies. And so, whereas... 12 months ago, certainly 18 months ago, most of the major movie studios still planned on releasing pretty much all of their titles in theaters exclusively for a long time. And then it wouldn't be available on streaming for, for months and in some cases years after the fact. We are now in a world where pretty much all of these companies have released at least one title exclusively on a streaming service and or in theaters and on streaming at the same time. And that is only going to continue the number of new movies that you can watch at home the, the part that's murkier is what happens with those titles that financially still make the most sense as theatrical releases, the $200 million Marvel movie, Spider-Man, James Bond, Fast and Furious, where studios still want to release them in theaters. They're in some cases, they are releasing them in theaters. The ones that are getting released right now are making a fraction of what they would have liked to. And people are hoping, thinking that, you know, three months from now, six months from now, they're going to be able to make as much money as they were before. And they'll also have that shortened window so the streaming service can benefit. But we don't know because 
you know, theater attendance is still down 40, 50% from, from what it used to be. Right. I mean, there's what the, there's what the theater owners want. There's what the movie studios want, the, the streamers want, and there's what the actual people going to movies want. And it seems like for a handful and really a small number of them, really Marvel movies, people are still coming out, not nearly in the numbers they used to, but they will still go to theaters. But for everything else, including things like James Bond um, and Dune, um, really sm much smaller numbers than they ever would have seen in a pre-COVID era. And so the question is, if we get to a point where COVID is endemic and, and no longer raging, Will people snap back to their old habits or are there multiple generations of people who are just not going to the movies anymore? Impossible question to answer, I think. Um, I would like to believe the kind of cinephile and person who likes going to movie, likes going to theaters, that everyone will still want to go to movies. Maybe they'll just go from, if the average used to be four movies a year, maybe the average will now be two or three because there's more available at home. And you'll see fewer theaters and, uh, and, and you'll see fewer movies released exclusively in theaters. But I don't think the, the theatrical experience will ever go away entirely. It's just like, are we going to a world where the movie theater experience is like the Broadway theater experience, where it's super high end and you go a couple of times a year? Because that's sort of the challenge they have, right? Is it's still priced like a mass market experience and there's not a lot of differentiation you know, my soapbox for at least a couple of years, if not longer, has always been that the theaters have to do more to evolve to make that experience feel special so that if, you know, you have the option of watching a movie at home, it actually doesn't feel the same as going to see it in theaters. I will say I saw Licorice Pizza, a new Paul Thomas Anderson movie, and Alamo, which is my favorite place to go see movies. It was great. I'm glad I saw it. It's much better to see it in a theater than sitting at home. It's just more immersive. I'm, I hope that I get to continue doing that down the road. Although, um, yeah. I just, that's, that's the kind of movie that you really don't need to go see in a theater. I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson would, would kill me for saying yes. that. Obviously, it's beautiful and all of those things. But it's an intimate kind of dramedy that... It is, although as, as the guy who goes to see the big Marvel movies with my kids and goes to see the licorice pizza on my own, I really do really value going to see those smaller movies in a theater just for concentration because my phone is down, I'm not going to pause it, I'm not going to walk to the bathroom, maybe someone's going to come deliver me some expensive uh, popcorn, but that's that's it. Um, and it really does make the movie better for me. Yes, of course I can see it better. Of course I can see it better. Um, of course it's easy enough for me to see it at home. I'm someone who watched eight hours of, uh, of Get Back on my phone, so I'm comfortable enough streaming stuff uh, that way. Um, speaking of movies, um, we're going to talk about Netflix a lot throughout this conversation, but recurring question, you tackled it just recently in your column. Um, why is Netflix still bad at making movies? They've been doing it for years and years and years. Um, it seemed like they were successful at television, at episodic television right out of the gate. And they do put out good movies periodically, but they put out a ton of other movies and a lot of them are actively bad. Not just, not just, you know, critics don't like them, but, but, but people do. There's a new Sandra Bullock movie out right now that apparently just is, is stinks to high heaven. How can they not get this right after years and years and now billions of dollars? So it's a good question. Obviously they would push back on this and say, well, people, the customer likes our movie, so who are you to say that, mm -hmm. that 
Red Notice, this big hit that they have, isn't good, or that the the different Adam Sandler's movies that they've released aren't good. But certainly critics don't like it. I think part of it is that there is a very real divergence in the movie business that's not just specific to Netflix, where a lot of the most popular movies now are not the ones that critics like. I mean, you look at the Oscars every year, and they're, for the most part, not universally popular movies. There's usually two or three big, broad movies that get nominated, but most of them are these indie indie dramas, many of which you can find on Netflix, by the way. They're just not the super popular ones. Mm -hmm. I also think that TV is is a more authorial, or the writer, if you find the right writer or producer, they can usually kind of guide that TV show to excellence. Film is more of a director's medium. You have a lot of directors who are still kind of reluctant to work with Netflix. They want, and if and for their best ideas, they still want to go to theaters. I think Netflix has still been in that mode oftentimes of sort of getting the movies that other people won't make. Whereas in TV, they're very clearly the first stop or one of the first stops. And they need to sort of get out of that rhythm where the top filmmakers come to them with their best stuff. But Red Notice is a good example. This is something Netflix flagged early on, said this is our big move into franchise filmmaking. We're hiring all this talent. We're going to make our own Hollywood style. And they've done lots of stuff where they hire like a Chris Hemsworth and then do sort of basically a low budget movie with a Chris Hemsworth. And that's a it works pretty well for them. And it is what it is. I kind of like that. It's super violent. Extraction is super violent. Uh adventure movie. Red Notice looked cheap. It did not look like a blockbuster. It looked like uh, it looked like a cutscene from a video game. There's a, there's a scene where they're they're at a bullfighting ring or something and the 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 CGI crowd it looks like they showed up to Hollywood and someone said, "I know a guy who can make you a movie. Give me 200 million dollars." and they got ripped off. Like as sort of often happens with with people who are just showing up. But again, they've been at it for years. Is there something structural about the way how Netflix works that that is making them miss this much or not getting their money's worth? Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the arguments that I bet a lot of the studios would make is if you think about some of their biggest hits on the TV side also, Netflix is not actually making a lot of those movies. Mm-hmm. There's an outside studio that made some of the, you know, Orange is the New Black, early hit made by Lionsgate, which also yep. made Mad Men and some other good shows. Um, you know, Narcos. There are a lot of titles where there's someone else who is sort of shepherding that process. That doesn't really happen as much on the film side, which means that you're relying on the Netflix team to oversee it. And they're they're trying to make too many movies with not enough people. And so I think quality control for them on that front might be more difficult. On the deal-making end, we saw two concurrent parallel and connected trends, I think. You saw uh, more consolidation from traditional um, studios. Um, Amazon is would like to buy MGM. Uh, AT&T, and we could talk about that for hours, has decided it doesn't want to own Warner Media, and it's going to pass it off to Discovery, more consolidation there. And then you're also has seen a, a boomlet of money going into independent production studios, usually run by someone famous, Reese Witherspoon's company, LeBron James' companies, are either selling themselves entirely or taking a big chunk of investment money. Are those separate trends or are they connected? Uh, I think they're they're largely separate with a little connective tissue. The bigger deals are you have these uh, uh, legacy media companies that realize that they're in some cases not big enough to compete with the Netflixes or Disney's of the world and want to consolidate so that they can more effectively do so. Or in the case of Amazon, you have this 
tech giant that is just continues to play around in Hollywood uh, and has lots of money to spend and decided to, because they haven't had a, as much success as Netflix making their own shows, to go and buy something that they thought could help them. I think when you're talking about the Reese Witherspoon, LeBron James of the world, it's related in that it's all part of this shift to streaming and there are people who believe that the demand for new product will continue to be high and so that if you invest in a, a Reese Witherspoon or a LeBron James, you will see some kind of return down the line. But that one to me also just reflects this moment where there's too much money in the marketplace. There's a, you know, a, lot of, a lot of financial firms, a lot of wealthy people who did super well during the pandemic. There's some concerns about inflation and they want to kind of park some of that extra money into assets that they believe are of value. And let's so put our money somewhere. Let's put, I mean, look, it's, it's not like it's just the Reese Witherspoon, right? We're seeing the same thing happen in slightly different way with music rights, where every other week, it seems like some musician is selling their catalog for $50 million, $100 million, $500 million, $300 yep. million. And so there, there's, there's been an inflationary pressure in a lot of these content related industries. So let me let me talk about the LeBron and, and Reese Witherspoon deals for a second. So they're they're pretty similar, right? They're production companies that trade off the name of their their celebrity. Um, they make stuff for streamers and studios. They, in some cases, have a very small catalog, but usually don't. You're buying the idea that they're really a production company. The investors who are buying all or part of them, do they intend to manage them in any way? Or is the hope that we're just going to throw some money at it, that gives us ownership, an ownership stake, hopefully it's worth more over time, and maybe over time uh, Disney or Amazon or Discovery Warner Media comes to us and wants to pay more than we did? Yeah, I think more the... The latter than the notion of management. I mean, the Reese one got bought by by Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs, two former Disney guys. I think they intend to manage in that they are agglomerating different companies that they feel will produce this independent media company that will either go public or get acquired or something. But look, Kevin Mayer has like seven different jobs right now. So he is not running that media company every day, he is trusting that the companies that he's buying have very strong management teams in place, which for the most part, the two companies that they've bought so far do, and that those people will work together to build a media company that will produce more value down the line, and they'll get involved where they can help, and they'll continue to buy other things. LeBron wants a little bit of a weird one, because yes, it's an investment in a media company, um, but he, it's also just sort of investing in LeBron and trusting that you know, one of the most famous and successful people in the world is going to have success in whatever he does and that his business partner, Maverick Carter, uh, will will similarly sort of leverage that name to, to build a big enterprise. That one feels like a company that's still in play because there's an investment and not a full acquisition and that yep. someone could certainly come around and, and buy it down the line. What do you make of the fact, by the way, that Epic Games, the people behind Fortnite, wanted to buy that company um, and ultimately didn't? I think they have a minority stake in it. I didn't even remember that. <laughs> okay, maybe maybe that wasn't reported. We can we can have a separate gaming discussion. That's for a different a different podcast. And then the 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 big traditional um, consolidation plays: the Discovery and Warner Media moving together, MGM going to Amazon. Um, it still leaves a bunch of smaller players on the. That's by the way, if those deals go through. Um, you know, the Warner and Discovery people act as if that deal is already approved. Um, we haven't heard anything from Washington yet, but there is a very aggressively antitrust group of folks there. We've talked in the past about Lena Khan and those folks. They're definitely looking at the Amazon deal. But separate from that, 
there's the Viacom, CBS, AMC, Sony's of the world that are all sitting out there. People have been expecting those to get snapped up for a while. They still haven't. Any idea why they haven't been sold yet and what would change that? Well, in the case of Comcast, NBC Universal, and Viacom, CBS, you have the challenge of both of those being family-controlled and run companies for the most part. So you have the Roberts family with Comcast. Oh, you're, you're, you're thinking of Comcast as a seller, not a buyer? I think, well, could be either. I don't, mm-hmm. I, I, at its scale, Comcast should be a buyer. It is, I don't know what the latest, but it's a $200 billion company. But it has an asset in NBC Universal that is presently undersized from a media perspective, and they know that. So either they have to spin that off, which is effectively selling it and merge it with something else, or they have to buy something else to bulk it up. They, and they'll need to make some kind of decision. I, I don't know what the result is going to be there. Um, but I, I could see it going in either direction. Um, Viacom CBS has the Redstones, you know, Sherry Redstone, ju- you know, it's only been a few years that she sort of effectively took control of her father's company. You know, she, she, she could sell it, but she also might kind of like the Roberts want to, to add to it. Then there's a bunch of smaller companies that I think would sell if they could find the right price, right? You've got AMC Networks, you've got uh, Lionsgate, um, that they see that MGM deal and are, are certainly a little bit envious and wondering why they can't get the same. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm still wondering that as well, right? I mean, the, there's lots of folks who think that Amazon is paying, you know, $3 billion too much for, for MGM. You know, the price is literally not relevant to, to Amazon. It'd be very relevant to some of these buyers. And by the same token, if, if a, a, you know, a production company with a handful of people is worth a billion dollars, then what's a network TV company that has an existing library, that has an existing base of subscribers paying money, that has an advertising revenue stream? Why shouldn't that be worth a bunch of money and why shouldn't that be worth be very valuable to an acquirer is it easier to buy a reese witherspoon and tell yourself that you're buying a new brand of ip than it is to buy an amc network which already owns a bunch of stuff it seems like a disconnect there well because the the current buyers right now are interested in buying the 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 intellectual property the assets without the encumbrance of the legacy tv networks even though legacy tv networks throw off cash they are a declining asset for the most part at the very or or a stable asset. And so that doesn't interest a Netflix and Amazon and Apple. Um, you know, you you made a good point earlier, which is that a lot of these production companies don't really own very much. Hello Sunshine Reese's company, you know, mostly just has sort of profit participation or or producer fees on future shows. Um, and a lot of the other companies that are in in some way in the market do. But you know, if you look at the deals, that they've done. Amazon bought MGM, which is primarily a library company. Netflix on a much smaller scale bought the Roald Dahl library, again, just like a pure IP play. You look at an AMC Networks, and AMC Networks' most valuable asset is not IP, it's its TV network. You know, it didn't get into owning its own IP until relatively late in the process. Its biggest early hits, the the Mad Men's and Breaking Bad's, it doesn't own. Um, and I think if it did, it would make it a, a, you know, a, a far more attractive property to some of these players. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Lucas Shaw. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, 
to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And we're back. Let's slide over a little bit more into TV and, and video. People who listen to this podcast probably think Succession is the biggest show on TV. They're wrong. What's, what's the biggest hit on TV this year? Yellowstone. Which is what? Uh, it is a Western uh, starring Kevin Costner on the Paramount Network, just about the only original show on the Paramount Network, created by Taylor Sheridan, who's now creating a few other projects. And I think this season it's, it's getting something like 14 or 15 million viewers a week. It's, it's not just the biggest show on cable. It is the biggest show on television. It, it sometimes competes with football. So to compare and contrast that, what's the succession audience right now? Uh, succession audience live is like 1.5, 1.7. When you factor in the catch-up viewing, I think HBO said recently the average episode in season three was getting like 6 million ep- viewers an episode. Now, I have not seen Yellowstone, but I know who Taylor Sheridan is. I have a sense of the show. It's it's like a prestige but more accessible Western, right? It's, it's old, yeah, it it's, was, it's, but it's not, it's not junk, right? We don't have to hold our correct. noses up against it. Beyond just the simple disconnect between people like you and me who write in podcasts and the people we talk to not paying attention to it, is there something else this tells us about, about media consumption and the way we um, both consumers and media operators view the world? Well, most of the r- people who write about media and TV live in one of two cities, Los Angeles and New York, I would guess that the share of viewership for succession relative to Yellowstone in those markets is very strong. Um, but there is, yeah, I mean, the, and the media has an inherent bias towards writing about what it likes. Also, it's a show about the media and we're all a little bit narcissistic. So I, I think that's the real bias and it would behoove people to spend more time writing about those things that are popular that maybe they they don't understand. Although I, in Yellowstone's case, it certainly does not get two New Yorkers profiles in one season like Succession, but it's gotten to a point where it gets a fair amount of coverage. People are aware. It's sort of like the new Walking Dead and it's that show that, you know, people people know that it's hugely popular, but they, they certainly don't read about it as, as much as the coastal hits. Good. Um, along the same lines, uh, Richard Rushfield, uh, another great media reporter, has uh, the Ankler uh, newsletter. I've had him on this show before. He uh, is uh, interviewing uh, anonymously uh, people in, in various uh, levels of power in Hollywood. Uh, so this is an anonymous CEO he quoted today talking about streamers versus traditional. The culture, I'm quoting, the culture is different because one is ordering TV shows and movies like you order a hamburger and the other one is going off your gut inside. The endless battle of art and commerce in Hollywood is quickly being lost to commerce. Now I'm giving you a big softball here because I I think I know what you're going to say, but do you think all the money going into streaming, um, the the little bit of, of um, injection of tech that's going into media financing and distribution is making worse content? Do you think it's better? Is it the same? I will get to that in a second. I'm just, the, what I find amazing about, because Richard, who, who's great, strikes this point that drives me crazy this notion that the shift from the old ways to tech is so different from anything that has come before it sort of drives me crazy because these movie studios and TV studios have changed hands among weird owners for decades. I think Coca-Cola at some point 
own, like a, an oil refinery owned, private, you know, industrialists have owned movie studios. There have ITT, always been, General Electric, yeah. Sony. There, there have always been weird comp- or companies that are outsiders who choose to buy movie studios either because we're in this mode of conglomeration and they think there's going to be some intangible benefit or because of ego or because they want to go to fancy parties. And they oftentimes have ideas about how these businesses should be run. And so this this fear of the tech money, uh, I, I f- always find a little bit overblown um, because art has always had benefactors who do not come from that industry. However, I do think there's something to the idea that the the glut of material and also catering to algorithms does affect product. I think it's more pronounced in music. I was speaking with you know a, a really prominent music executive recently who made the point that they felt this was a artistically a rather low period. Um, you have you have peaks and valleys, but because everyone is catering towards the algorithm, a lot of pop songs, a lot of hip hop sounds very similar right now. It's not so interesting. You haven't had that to the same degree in in TV because you're not catering to one algorithm or a couple of playlists. You are in theory catering to a lot of different tastes. But I think there's probably a little less quality control because it's just hard to do that when you're producing at such a volume. Yeah, the idea that the tech companies are making stuff based on what a computer tells them is, I think, mostly just fully not true. And by the way, it's not like um, studios and television networks haven't done audience testing for years. It's a little bit Netflix's fault because they leaned in publicly to the idea that, that they certainly didn't discourage people like us from writing about the fact that they were going to use their deep audience insights into figuring out what to make. But it seems pretty obvious that they're saying, this stuff is popular, let's make more of it. Or this stuff used to be popular, but people aren't making it, but we think economically we can make it work for us. Um, and it's kind of that simple. Um, is there anyone who really is really using deep tech insight into figuring out how to make stuff? Not at the major entertainment companies. I mean, I think you're right that Netflix got a lot of, it, it was to their benefit to convince people that they had some secret sauce or some secret data when Hollywood has always been a town of copying, basically, where if something works on one network or from one studio, everyone else wants to do the same thing. This is just a slightly elevated version of that. There's more data at their disposal, but you have a lot, you know, most of the people making the top decisions to Netflix now on the film side, on the TV side, used to work at traditional entertainment companies. They are, in a sense, also using their gut to make their decisions. I think it, where the, where the data and information influences is like sometimes in the, the length of a show, you know, do you want to make it a few extra episodes to keep them in? Do you make it shorter? Because based on what your data is telling you about when people stop watching, I think it's affected the art a little bit in, you know, need, wanting to leave an episode with some kind of cliffhanger to get people to watch the next one, to stay engaged. It's, it's more affected it at the margins like that instead of people, you know, programming purely based off of some spreadsheet. You talked about music and the influence of tech there. Can you talk a little bit more about sort of how, I think we're really talking about TikTok here, but you tell me, but I think it's also a bit about how Spotify works, how that is affecting what kind of music is made and how it sounds. Yeah, well, for a while it was Spotify and people, I think, catering their, or tailoring their music to be put on the top playlists, which were sort of the, the, the arbiters of taste or of hits 
from say 2015 to 2018 or 19, you wanted to end up on today's top hits, you wanted to end up on rap caviar and so on and so forth. Now it definitely is TikTok. There are kind of music theorists and students of it who could explain it better. But if, if you just think about it, you know, a TikTok is a short video where you have to get something, you want some kind of hook that gets people into it. You want something that will correspond to the, the actions or changes that, that transpire in a TikTok video. And so you have a lot of music producers who are kind of tailoring their music to be used in, in some TikTok video. It's pretty wild. I, I got, I finally gave in and, and put TikTok on my phone early beginning of this year. And now whenever I go out, I can tell immediately sort of what kind of place I'm in if they have what I think of as a TikTok soundtrack. Um, I don't even know if they're programming it or if they're just buying it from a service, but it's all the songs that are on my For You page are, are then being blasted at me um, via via the sound system. And I can't, I'm assuming it's all be, that these are songs TikTok has made popular, then stations are playing them, and then it comes to me while I'm eating my gnocchi. But it's quite telling who's who's, who's Yeah, you who's, can usually see in. a direct link. Like half the time where I, 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 we put together this, this thing usually once a month where I would rank the biggest pop stars in the world based on a bunch of different inputs. TikTok is not one of them because I don't have a reliable data set from them. But you can see from that, okay, what's really popular on Spotify, what's really popular on YouTube. A lot of the ones at the top start on, on TikTok from the mainstream artists. But then there's also the weird ones that stand out to you because you've never heard of the act before. And with those got to be 99% of the time where it went viral on TikTok and then it crossed over to Spotify and then radio stations started playing it or whoever, where, where, wherever you're having your meeting, whatever their music source is. Let's, let's, I was going to save TikTok and YouTube for the end. Let's, let's go now. YouTube, you and I have talked about this for years. Uh, your colleague, Matt, Mark Bergen, who used to work with me, knows this. Enormously influential um, and almost feels subterranean. Um, when it comes to discussions like this, uh, coverage, it seems as if grownups, at least in the press, have no idea how YouTube works. When I talk to media executives, YouTube doesn't really come up. Um, TikTok seems kind of similar. They at least know that TikTok's a thing, but I don't get any sense that they're sort of really grappling with what it means for their business. Um, first of all, do you think that's right, or am I am I talking to the wrong media executives? And much more of them are, are many more of them are aware of what YouTube is and what it does to their business and doesn't do their business. And and same for TikTok. I think all the media executives are aware of how powerful YouTube is. I mean, they they still underestimate it, but they get that it's this hugely popular cultural force. But they're not sure how to channel it or use it. You know, it was only a couple of years ago that a lot of news organizations, for example, were investing all of their video dollars into video for Facebook, mm -hmm. which didn't make a lot of sense at the time, proved to be foolish. And now a lot of them are, now, are shifting that money over to YouTube because YouTube is more reliable. And yes, there are occasionally changes in the algorithm that might hurt them in some way, shape or form, but the trajectory for YouTube is, is going up. TikTok they have had to try to figure out faster, mostly because they knew that they missed on these other ones and so they wanted to get to it sooner. But, uh, but I haven't seen a lot of media companies with a great TikTok presence. Maybe there, there are a couple of them. 
I mean, the question is, right, do you, do you, if you're a media exec on either one of these coasts, do you try to create your own property that does well there? Do you find the Charlie D'Amelio's or, you know, the, the millions of influencers who are less influential than her and just try to pay them money to promote your thing. I, I guess that, I guess the real question is, are your, you know, if you're, if you're a movie producer, do you have any hope of getting people who are watching TikTok and YouTube to spend time watching your movie instead of watching TikTok and YouTube? I think that's the fundamental question. Um, yeah. So is anyone doing a good job of, of, of harnessing any of that? Or is it just sort of, you know, resignedly coexisting with it? Mostly coexisting. I mean, there have been a couple, like there was the, um, there was She's All That or the He's All That, the, the sequel remake of the kind of 90s rom-com with Addison Ray on Netflix that seemed like it did fairly well. I think, you know, Hulu has a, a show with the D'Amelios. That's really just trying to, to bring as much of that audience in. I leave it to those services to say how effective that's been. I think a lot of these these media companies, uh, and I don't know exactly when we're dropping this episode, so I will either be giving a, 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 a precast or talking afterwards. This I'm will be Christmas writing. week, you tell me. Okay, so. I, will have, I will have just written uh, a newsletter about the fact that all these media companies that first brought people onto the internet now kind of have a, a Gen Z TikTok problem, um, and that they're all trying to, f Gen Z is using their services less than most of the other generations and they're not entirely sure how to capture them and most of them have done so by just copying it. YouTube has a product that's the same as TikTok. Instagram has a product that's the same as TikTok. Netflix has some products that are kind of like TikTok. Spotify's working on something that's kind of like TikTok. Um, and so for now, I think it's a lot of that, just like copying and, and audience grabbing. I haven't seen anyone with a with a clear answer and that's because if you're a traditional player, you're you're just not wired to to think that yeah. way. It's fine. By, by the way, even the, the tech companies that are just flat out copying um, TikTok and for starters, um, and that they don't make any bones about it. Not only are they copying it, but like all the content is TikTok. Um, my younger son doesn't have TikTok, but he's fully aware of it because he watches YouTube shorts. Um, um, and on my Instagram reels are 100% populated by, by TikTok. Um, and I guess they're okay with that for now. Um, while we're having a tech discussion uh, and previewing stories in the works, I'm writing about Web3 and blockchain and crypto and what it all means. There's a current of that discussion that says we're going to use this technology to upend music. There's a lot of excitement around that. And then there are some folks um, who think that you could also use this to upend Hollywood. And, you know, it's all very fuzzy how you do this, but you basically would, the theory is we're all going to get together and make our own movies or finance our own movies. We don't need to go through Hollywood gatekeepers. Is that stuff filtering into Hollywood yet or is that not penetrated? It is filtering in among those people who are always eager to grab onto whatever the next big trend is. If you're at the, the music companies and you're sort of the digital person, you're definitely thinking about a strategy for that. If you're in the creator world, you are definitely thinking about how to leverage Web3 for your, uh, your creators. I think that for the kind of traditional movie, TV studio, streaming services, there it's still a little early for them to be too think about it too much. And and part of that is it seems very obvious to me, and I, I look forward to reading your piece that 
virtual goods and transacting online will be bigger and bigger parts of our future. But what you're describing, this notion of uh, kind of self-funding by raising money through sen- selling NFTs or, or, or raising money ahead of time to fund a project is something people have wanted for, for a very long time. And every time it seems like this disintermediation is going to happen, it never does. And so most people tend to be pretty skeptical. And I, I count myself in that group, but, you know, at some point it, it could certainly happen. And, uh, yeah, and there's no reason to believe this won't be it. My short version, and this is really what I'm just saying the piece, is I don't see why this is any different than Kickstarter. Um, you could have funded movie through Kickstarter. A couple movies got funded and then it, then nothing else happened. I think the same structural issues um, exist. Um, let's talk about music. Obviously, touring has come back a little bit this year. That's a, a big deal for a lot of acts. Again, big question about COVID. Um, is the expectation in the music business that by 2022, it pretty much looks the same as it did in 2019? Or is there th- anything that's fundamentally going to have changed? Yeah, all of the the forecasts right now are for you know record 2022, because a lot of these places are they're charging more because of the costs that they've incurred or lost revenue from. And the, the enthusiasm on the part of the fans seems to be pretty strong, which is inter- kind of an interesting comparison with the movie business where the interest isn't quite there. Like most in the music business, you have a lot of people who put off tours until 2022 because they didn't want to take the risk that they would lose money in 2021. Um, Whereas more of the movies people kind of tried to push out, but whereas the interest is there and people can sell out for music, we, we still see a diminished interest on the movie side. I, I expect, you know, depending on on what happens with Omicron and, and, and variants to see a pretty healthy music business next year. I mean, Harry Styles had a very successful tour in, in 2021, the Rolling Stone. A lot of the aging rock bands had big tours, but coming around February, March, April, you're going to see some of the big acts, The Weeknd, um, Bad Bunny go on tour. And I believe most of their shows are already sold out. Anything changing with music streaming and consumption itself? Um, like you mentioned earlier, the value of these catalogs keeps going up. That seems to be more connected to just speculation and, and cheap and, and easy money, as opposed to changes in the way people are consuming music. The number of people who are paying for music doesn't seem to have shot up dramatically. Am I missing anything? No, I mean, you, you used a, a word at the beginning of the podcast that I thought was apt, which was, I believe, kind of stasis. Not a, a, Most of the tr- big trends that we saw in 2021 are, are kind of the same trends that we saw in, in 2020. Now, some of that is because the pandemic just prolonged. But this shift to, to music streaming and paid music streaming has continued unabated. We are now reaching a point with some of these services where eking out growth may get a little tougher, sort of like what we're seeing on the video side with with Netflix, you get to a certain scale, you're now having to find customers in places where either people don't have as much money or the cultures are different. And so finding new customers can get difficult. But you know the, the numbers that we're seeing out of all the music companies are still pretty strong because they've found ways to make all sorts of people pay them for their music, whether it's social media companies or exercise companies or video game companies. And so there, there hasn't been a huge shift. If anything, there's been kind of continued consolidation of assets uh, between those those three companies. Good. Um, I don't know if it's good. I'm just saying good. Um, 
I did a whole podcast end of the year with Ashley Carmen, but you do pay attention to the space. You're you're on top of the deal making there. There's a lot of uh, in, individual podcast makers and small production companies have gotten snapped up over the last year. Should we assume that trend continues for a while, or is sort of everything that could have been bought been bought by this point? There are a ton of companies that could still be bought. Uh, I would be, I, I, but I don't know that I anticipate this a similar wave of acquisitions only because Spotify has already is which is the biggest player has already made several deals and there's been a concerted effort within that company to go from being more in the Netflix mold of we're going to be a studio studio that makes all of our biggest hits to we're going to be a platform that's kind of like YouTube and yes we'll continue to make our own shows and we're going to invest more money in it but. I don't see them going out to buy. They want to go back to where they were comfortable, which is being a tech company that doesn't really make and own their own content, even though they're going to have a little little side of them that does that. And Amazon has made a big deal. Maybe if they want to take it more seriously, you could see them add in a couple more. Apple has been really reluctant to make any kind of commitment in the space. Uh, And then, you know, you've got the the other players like the... Sirius XM, Pandora, Liberty Media group of what they want to do. So there could be more deals. There have been a ton of podcasting companies that have started and have raised money, none of which have gotten maybe the same favorable press as, as some of those ones that's a, that a Spotify bought or an Amazon bought. But they're out there and there's been so much money to go into podcasting. I think the real challenge for a lot of them right now is that it's just such a diffuse market. You now have 3 million podcasts or whatever the latest total is. And it it's very difficult to amass audience if you're doing that. As a bunch of us know. Um, I, I'll, I won't ask you about your boss and and, uh, and his, his overarching um, disdain for podcasts. So none of us get in trouble. Um, let me ask you about what you are consuming for fun. What's, what's your favorite thing you've read, watched, listened to this year? Um... Well, Spotify would tell me that my favorite album of the year was the new record from Arlo Parks, uh, who's a British kind of neo-soul singer that I that I loved. I watched a lot of TV this year. There's a recency bias, so I probably am enjoying Succession and, and Insecure as, as much as just about anything else I've watched. Uh, the way my brain works, I now have to go back nah, nah. through... You're, you're, let's, let's, let's admit it. We're all coastal elites who watch Succession. I don't, uh, by the way, you know who didn't watch Succession on Sunday night? Jason Kyler. He says, which I actually believe him on that one. He says he was too busy running Warner Media. Um, and Lucas is being very quiet right now. I've gotten really quiet. What are your answers for that? Um, I spent so much time playing video games. Um, and when I say video games, I really mean Fortnite. Um, partly for fun, partly for work. Um, nothing that is remotely demanding. Um, Succession is by far the most demanding uh, thing that I watched in the last year. I, Like I think I said, I watched all eight hours of The Beatles on my phone. Yeah, I got all race. I can't tell you what I was doing in February or January or March. It's all it's all a mystery to me. I, I am remembering from the year, the, the best of year end lists, what have you, that the documentary Summer of Soul came out this year. For some reason, I thought I watched it last year. But that was pretty great. I have a bunch of things stacked up like that in my queue. That's there. Um, the uh, the Velvet Underground documentary I really want to watch. I watched something that I don't think anyone else except for one other person has watched. It's called 1971 on Apple. It's a music doc. 
Um, and in a lot of ways, it fit, hits a lot of familiar notes about old boomers playing music. Um, but there's a lot of footage I had never seen, especially a lot of Sly Stone um, being really, really high on the Dick Cavett show, which is great. Uh, mixed in with some history and politics at the time that I was certainly aware of, but wasn't fully aware. Like, I didn't realize the connection between Attica and pop music at the time. Anyway, it's very good. I'd recommend that. Um, Lucas Shaw, I'd recommend talking to you any time of the year. I'm sorry we couldn't do it in person. Um, thank you for your time. I'm going to let you get back to your, uh, your tech support with mom. Thanks for having me, Peter. Thanks, Lucas. Thanks again to Lucas Shaw, who's not totally psyched that I describe his promotion as a good thing for his competitors. Um, I was just being a little bit flipped. We love Lucas Shaw. That's why we have him on for end of the year episode. Um, we love the people who put this podcast together behind the scenes at Fox Media. I'm not naming them because I'm not quite sure who they are on this episode. It's been that kind of week. Uh, we love our sponsors for obvious reasons. And we love you guys for listening, for writing to tell us that you listen, and suggesting people that we should talk to. We love it when you tell other people about the show. It's, it's free content. and We try to make it good for you. Uh, we hope you are having a good holiday this is Recode Media. We'll be back next week.